Hi, this is Malia Warner. Welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. This podcast shares the principles of healthy living I learned in my journey healing through postpartum depression, autoimmune disease, and chronic illness. The goal is to give you knowledge and energy to help you get unstuck and move forward towards your best life. episode, I ask an expert for insights on changing the name and the stigma surrounding postpartum depression, anxiety, and maternal mental health concerns. We talk about what is physically going on in the brain and body that can lead to symptoms of depression, anxiety, confusion, agitation, overwhelm, or a multitude of other symptoms which can appear during or after childbirth. We discuss what mothers, partners, and clinicians can do to better educate and improve the diagnoses and treatments of these postpartum illnesses. And this expert pinpoints and describes the number one most effective and most often neglected prescription for postpartum health. Welcome to episode 16, Conversations on Maternal Mental Health. Hi friends, I am very excited for today's episode. Before we begin the interview, I want to give you a really good introduction of today's guest. Amy Rose White is a licensed clinical social worker who is a maternal mental health and couples counseling specialist. In 2014, she founded the Utah Maternal Mental Health Collaborative, which has joined forces with maternal mental health advocates and is now the Utah chapter of Postpartum Support International. I first met Amy Rose White at the Utah State Capitol in February 2018 when I was there with the Emily Effect for the Senate vote on SCR 11, a resolution that identified postpartum depression and anxiety as a serious statewide public health issue. The resolution urged the Utah Department of Health, State Department of Human Services, and medical professionals to expand provider training, education, and support and a standard of care across practices in perinatal settings. The resolution requested that mothers be screened for symptoms of depression during their pregnancy and after delivery, and requested that health authorities across the state become better educated regarding short-term and long-term impacts of maternal depression and anxiety in order for evidence-based preventative care, early identification, and treatment services become available and accessible statewide for all women. Since she arrived in Utah eight years ago, Amy Rose White has been a key influencer in instigating progressive reform for the diagnosis, treatment, and support for mothers and families during and after childbirth. For all of my listeners living outside of Utah, Postpartum Support International is an organization for collaborating, sharing knowledge, expertise, and resources across state boundaries. My wish for every state would be to have an Amy Rose White on your team. And maybe someone listening is going to be that person for your state or your local community. If you are looking for a role model of how to get big things done from a grassroots level, you can look to Amy Rose White and her collaboration of efforts. Today, I am so pleased to present for you part one of what will be a two-part interview with maternal mental health expert, Amy Rose White. Welcome, Amy Rose. I am so thankful for you being here. Fitting that today is May 1st, 2019. It's World Maternal Mental Health Awareness Day. 
Worldwide maternal depression is the most common serious health complication of maternity. And I'm interested, what would you say has been the number one thing that impacted you getting involved in this work? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be with you today. As most of the advocates in this field, it was my personal experience uh, with um, actually postpartum PTSD, which I did not know was a thing when I was pregnant during my second year of graduate school, providing help, and this is tongue in cheek, <laughs> as a, I guess I was 26 at the time, year old social worker on a labor and delivery floor as a medical social worker in a hospital having no knowledge at all about the realities of pregnancy and postpartum depression and anxiety. And so when my son had um, a very difficult labor, I guess I should say we both did, um, that was traumatic for both of us, I was left with symptoms that I absolutely did not recognize, um, my pr providers didn't recognize, my fellow colleagues and friends who had gone through social work school with me would come to visit and couldn't talk about the birth without crying, had no idea what was happening to me. I didn't actually even figure it out till I was pregnant with my second son, I guess 18 months later. So it's been a journey of mine to find the support that I couldn't and help providers um, educate and prepare and, and prevent, when they can, uh, maternal emotional health complications. And so that kind of led me down this path and um, it's why I sit here today. And that little guy is almost 16 years old. Let's dive right into talking about the terms mood disorder, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. You talked about the symptoms that you had, not recognizing the symptoms. I know from my own experience, I did not treat my symptoms for a long time because I didn't feel depressed. And when my OB was saying, this is postpartum depression, take an antidepressant, I wouldn't take medication because I didn't feel depressed, but I had other symptoms. What do you think about the terms that we use? Do you think that they inhibit women from getting help and, and men also when we right. you know label this disease as depression or anxiety? Right, and also assume it only applies to women, which it actually doesn't. These are really wonderful questions. The term postpartum depression is a total misnomer. Oh, I think so too. <laughs> it's a complete misnomer. Oh, I think so too. And in fact, one of the reasons, uh, not to belabor my personal story, but I knew I was at risk for postpartum depression because I had a history of severe adolescent depression, and by golly, I knew what that felt like. So I was bracing myself for something that felt just like that. So when nothing ever looked or felt like that, I assumed I didn't have postpartum depression. Um, but with my second child, I was yelling at my two-year-old. I was impatient with my husband. I was not the mom that I thought I was going to be. And I just thought it must be my difficult childhood or I just turned out to be a terrible mom despite all my years teaching preschool with young children and loving children and had no idea that I actually did have depression, but it didn't look or feel like depression I'd had in the past or anyone had informed me about. Um, the reality is that the research is showing us that more and more women experience um, anxiety and agitated depression. So often women with primarily anxious symptoms will meet the criteria for depression if you dig around and ask about hopelessness, guilt thoughts of dying, even if they don't have a plan, tearfulness, things like that. But their predominant disturbance, you know, what's keeping them from getting out of the door with, you know, a toddler and a preschooler and a baby is um, agitation, irritability, and anxiety, and, and often insomnia. So the term 
you know, in the field of clinicians like me, we call them perinatal, which means conception through the first year postpartum. Mood and anxiety disorders used to be what we call them. Now, technically, our diagnostic Bible has deemed them um, mood, anxiety, obsessive, compulsive, and trauma-related disorders, (laughs) which nobody says, of course, because it's like, what in the heck does that mean? But um, for sure, there actually are um, seven common diagnoses that all happen to women um, in percentages much higher than gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, and preterm birth. And those are things that women are routinely educated and screened about, yet the variety of different postpartum emotional health complications, that's the verbiage I think is more accurate, um, range in the, you know, seven five to seven for the OCD, PTSD, and then getting into the 10, 15 to 22% for anxiety, like obsessive compulsive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, PTSD, and then major depressive disorder, which again, typically doesn't present with a woman crying all day, under the covers, not functioning, feeling really sad and down. Typically, those women are taking really good care of their children. They are getting out of bed somehow. They might have passive thoughts of it just might be nice to not wake up and this nightmare could be over, but they don't feel depressed exactly to your point. So the goal of maternal mental health awareness, the Emily effect, which you have worked with a lot, is to end this stigma. I'm curious your thoughts on calling something a mood disorder calling an illness after an emotional symptom seems to propagate the stigma. Does, does that make sense what I'm Absolutely. saying? If I were diabetic and my insulin levels were off, I could be grouchy and agitated and yell at my kids. What is the illness that is leading to the emotions of agitation? Insomnia. Now, th- those are the symptoms, but we're calling the disease after the symptoms and Mm -hmm. I'm interested for you to speak to that. Mm -hmm. Well, there isn't one clear answer to that question, but looking back historically, we have in our medical model an unfortunate separation between emotional and mental wellness and physical health. And what we now know from the field of neurobiology or neuro psychoimmunology actually, is that every thought and feeling emotionally has a physical reaction in the body. And at the end of the day, one answer to your question is an inflammatory response in the body, as well as a dysregulation of the stress response processes in the brain called the HPA axis. So most women who are presenting with the symptoms we're talking about today have very clear changes in their stress response physical system that results in the emotional or mental Mm -hmm. health symptoms. And the average person doesn't know that, although it's becoming more and more understood. And I think that's largely because we have these very siloed fields of mental health, emotional wellness, and physical health. And then within those parameters, we also have traditional or allopathic Western medicine, and then we have quote-unquote alternative medicine, and the language and the way we talk about these symptoms in all of those silos is very different. It's true. It really goes right back to the term mental illness and mental health, which is a term that's been around for a long time. I think for, you know, the blanket of depression and anxiety and the suicide epidemic that we're experiencing right now, I think if we want to change the stigma we need to change the name from mental illness to brain illness, to mm-hmm. brain health. You know, who's who's the grand namer in charge? <laughs> <laughs> Who do we talk right. to? <laughs> right. Well, so. you know, you're speaking to something very significant, which is consumers, those of us that care about emotional wellness mm-hmm. and are either treating it or 
we are survivors ourselves, we are in charge of that. You know, we, we as consumers and advocates actually get to determine the labels that we hold or don't hold. And I think that we're going to see a real shift in that paradigm as a result of that. Women demanding that they not only be screened and, and treated accurately and given good information, but also that the stigma around emotional wellness change because when the, anyone hears the term mental health or disorder, I mean, who wants to be disordered? That's why the handouts I make always say emotional wellness, emotional health complications. Fantastic. I don't want to think of myself as disordered because it also suggests a permanence. That word has the connotation of a character flaw and that's what people think of when they think of mental health or mental illness is that it's a weakness it's a flaw if you don't have good friends or you're not strong or you don't have family to talk to you that's why you need mental health or you weren't capable of putting that smile on your face to give the field of cognitive behavioral therapy a voice really briefly they would argue that thoughts create feelings which create physiological responses in the body and i would argue that is also true so it's it's firstly impossible to know exactly what came first with someone but in this um, world we live in today where we have an enormous toxic burden around pollution pollutants pesticides all sorts of you know plastics emf frequencies mm-hmm. our our endocrine systems i don't think evolutionarily have caught up and so i think our bodies um you know pregnancy not to go too into the physiology but pregnancy is an inflammatory state it's also an immunosuppressive state so postpartum it kind of makes sense that if you have a high toxic load or you have a bunch of viruses in your body you know most people have herpes one the cold sore virus in their Mm -hmm. bodies for example most people will be exposed to epstein-barr virus in their lives most people have um our age have mercury fillings in their mouth (laughs) you know most of us are been using fabric softener and things like that and different genes allow our body to um, metabolize toxins at different rates and i think we're going to see that a lot of the physiology around mental health has to do with our bodies just grappling with our environment and if you take a woman who happens to have a hormone sensitive brain, which many of us do, the enormous changes of pregnancy and postpartum sort of tip that over. It is an excellent point because for me, the greatest healing happened with discovering my thoughts and just the constant repeating negative toxic thoughts. So it is a chicken or the egg thing of are your chronic negative thoughts distorting the the physical, the electrochemical reactions in Mm -hmm. the brain. They all influence each other that's for certain and you bring up a good point with mothers feeling that this is a character flaw and that it gets so intertwined with well I'm just a bad mother if I'm not coping well if I can't get out of the house if I'm not sleeping at night you know I I can't close my eyes because I'm so worried what will happen to the baby Mm -hmm. so I would like you to speak to the mothers that are listening what would you say to every expecting mother to help her take charge of and heal through her postpartum journey? I think the top level answer to your question is continue as we do in pregnancy. You know, we're very special when we're pregnant. We're numero uno. People mm-hmm. pull chairs out for us and they, they give us the seat on the bus and they want us to eat the best food and they're asking how we feel all the time. Often for the first time in a woman's life, she feels special and important. And suddenly when the baby comes, it's all about the baby. So if there was one piece of advice I would say, it is keep yourself numero uno because you cannot pour from an empty vessel. And that's 
why I use this analogy often with clients is, you know, we don't forget to change the oil for 10 years, drive up the hill, have the car explode and then get angry at the car. You know, the car has to have regular gas and oil change, <laughs> gas fueled, fuel every, you know, few weeks or so and oil changes. And we don't expect more of the vehicle. And yet as women in particular, and this is true for fathers too, but in American culture, the mother has a tremendous burden to be perfect, look perfect, love every minute, do it well, figure out exactly the educational needs and dietary needs and allergy needs of every child. And if she doesn't get it right, she's a failure. And that leads to women neglecting their nutrition. And this is, these are the second, third, and fourth things I would say, sleep. Which is so challenging. Sleep. It is, right. <laughs> sleep is so challenging with the newborn. Automatically. You have to fight for it. You have to fight for it. If you're fortunate to have a, a, a partner and a supportive partner, that's where I always ask people to start is thinking when they're pregnant, especially if they already have other children, how can your brain get a four to six hour stretch of sleep as soon as humanly possible? And most people look at me like I'm totally nuts when I say that. But for um, preventative purposes and for intervention or if you have a lot of risk factors, it is the most important thing you can do is get that four-hour stretch of sleep, which often means having someone else feed the baby as soon as the baby is able to drink whatever kind of nutrition from a bottle and keep your nutrition just as it was during your pregnancy and drink a ton of water. It Sleep is healing. It's the number one ways that our, that our yeah. body heals. That's I right. remember wishing that my doctor would write me a prescription for sleep that I could take home and have this validation because I couldn't ask for it myself. Now that's my own that's <laughs> problem, very common. but I think that a lot of women feel that way that we need to do it. And it's so hard. I remember my mother coming and staying with me and asking me if I wanted to go take a nap. And I didn't because I didn't want to feel lazy around her. You you have this feeling that people are judging you and how you're coping with the baby. And so it's hard to give ourselves permission for that self-care and for that sleep. So that is an excellent point. Absolutely. And that brings up asking for and accepting help. I remember when my second son was born, my father-in-law, I was I was carrying laundry and he was, I don't know, maybe two weeks, three weeks old. And he said, you, you better put that down. Like you're not going to recover well if you're you're jumping back into doing these things. And I remember thinking, if I don't do it, no one will. Mm -hmm. And that's a common dilemma in a lot of relationships is <laughs> um, feeling like maybe the burden isn't equally shared. But I also think a lot of us women overfunction, don't ask for help. I certainly could have, I had my in-laws there, I certainly could have not done that. But I, inside my mind, like you, sort of had this like, I'm tough, I'm strong. Exactly. I'm healthy, I'm gonna bounce back, I'm gonna get this done, it's gonna make me feel accomplished. And there's a lot of losses of control when we have children. Sometimes overdoing it is one way I think we compensate and feel like, well, I did, I know there'll be more dishes tomorrow, but I got something done. The yes. raising of a child is never done. <laughs> there's not a sense of accomplishment yeah. in that parenting. And no. so I can really relate to that, feeling like you just need to get something done to feel that sense of accomplishment. Yeah, and in the doing of that, you're not filling up the tank is the point I'm trying to make. And then it is likely that your brain, to your earlier point that there's a, usually a physiological component, your brain will complain you, you will start to see breakthrough, bleed through symptoms. And that's why sleep is the most important thing because whether a woman truly needs medication, whether a woman truly needs um, a certain nutrient, if she's not sleeping, 
I don't know. So it's, it's unless she's very, very sick, we always want to start with sleep because sometimes that takes care of a vast majority of symptoms or at least makes them manageable. Yes. Sleep is a magical mm-hmm. remedy it is. that we don't prescribe ourselves enough. Yes. So you brought up a really good point earlier that during pregnancy, a woman feels special. And it's true, you get those monthly prenatal appointments, making sure everything's good with that baby, just watch the ultrasounds, everything. And then it's true, the baby comes in, it's kind of a drop off for the mom. The baby still gets the two week and one month and two month appointments. Do you think there's a solution there for having more frequent checkups on new moms? One of the things that Postpartum Support International Utah is working really hard with, we have a policy team that includes representatives from the American Academy of Pediatrics, is, um, and this is actually coming from the American Academy of Pediatrics now, are recommendations that at well baby checks, moms are also routinely screened for depression and anxiety, and then referred to a qualified therapist support group is is given information about nutrition and sleep there's an acronym we use in utah called snowball the s is for sleep the n is nutrition we can talk about the rest of that later but i think that's the place because most moms do take their children to well baby checks for at least the first year if not far beyond really those are the only eyes on moms maybe you get a two-week check maybe a six-week check and then nobody sees mom I love that. So being screened by the pediatrician, actually. Yes. Well, what I love about that is it's not another doctor's appointment. Right. Because mothers can get their kids to the dentist and get their baby to all of the appointments, but to get an appointment for herself is near to impossible. Like, you might as well book space shuttle travel to the moon (laughs) and get yourself into into a doctor's office. I love that. I love that. And also the postpartum visit, you just have that one time and it might hit on a good day because there is so much fluctuation during postpartum. You do have the the ups and downs. It may not constantly be bad or dark all the time. Or women will normalize it in their mind or providers tend to normalize it. In the first six weeks, it's still pretty rocky. You know, I mean, when I work with moms who have chosen to nurse and are able to nurse often say like, give it full six weeks. The first six weeks are rough often in the nursing relationship or feeding relationship in general, whether you're bottle feeding or nursing, because babies are learning, they have palate issues, they may have a tongue tie, maybe there's respiratory for NICU babies, it's much more complicated, the whole feeding piece. So to really know where you are at emotionally, usually the three month mark is where I hear from women the most. Six months, eight months, 12 months, 18 months, oftentimes women don't recognize that they're really not like themselves. And that's the other piece I would invite pregnant women to think about is pay attention to if you're feeling like yourself. You know, when I was yelling, that was not me. It just wasn't. I'm, you know, I had the patience of a saint with my first child. And then all of a sudden with my second, I'm done. And I was done because I had a somewhat medically complicated child that didn't sleep through the night, who woke up at 4 a.m. for the day, never not more than 30 minutes. And I was the martyr who didn't let my husband help at night. Um, you know, 13, 14 months, I hadn't slept. I hadn't slept. And so by the time the second one came and was little, like I, my brain was so depleted, my inflammatory processes were so probably out of the ballpark that, um, yeah, I was yelling. My adrenals were shot. I, I had elevated cortisol. And so wasn't myself but I didn't feel depressed and no one told me look you know and your husband knows if something is not right and, and listen to that listen to that listen and reach to those out. messages reach listen out. to that intuition that you just feel something isn't right and instead of going to the 
well, I'm just a bad mother, or I need to be stronger, I need to have a stronger character, to recognize this is not me. I am a good woman. This is not a reflection on my character. There's probably something more going on here physiologically that can be treated. Absolutely. And can get better. Absolutely. And that is the thing is in nearly all cases, although women are at highest risk for emotional health concerns during their reproductive childbearing years, women tend to respond to appropriate treatment far faster than any other time in lifespan as well. When you get the right treatment, you get the combination of things that work for you, which are generally a combination of t- social support, sleep, talking to someone which may be a therapist or other trust- trusted counsel person, and some, and nutrition slash medication if it's warranted for your brain. Women are much better within weeks not even months, weeks. I mean, I expect people to have a turnaround within a session or two of coming to me if we, if our wellness plan is working for them. And no, it's not always the case, but in the vast majority, it is totally treatable, completely recoverable. Sometimes I see women who have had lifelong mild anxiety or depression, they feel better than they did before they had children. Interesting. And that is such good news. I remember a doctor looking at me and saying, you will get 100% well. And that sentence was this hope, because I really thought it would be that way forever. I thought I would never feel like myself again. People in general, we we settle. We we're don't, pretty strong. We're so like, it's strong. It's amazing what we can put up with. We just get but used we to don't it. have to. We don't have to. And I say we don't. We aren't making the world any better for our daughters. Yes. <laughs> by settling, by not expecting more and asking for more. My thanks to Amy Rose White today for sharing her expertise and insights. Her contact information website are listed on my website, maliawarner.com, and in the show notes. Next week on part two, we continue the discussion talking about the negative impacts we as mothers can have on our sons and our daughters if we don't seek help and ask for help when we need it. Also, Amy Rose gives her advice to spouses, partners, and family members, ideas for how they can support mothers during and after childbirth. All this and much more on next week's episode of Power Principles, the podcast. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening. Have a great week.